in your group who wants to share some of the things that that you said were some of the greatest achievements in the 20th century? Anybody want to share something to your group? The moon landing. Yes, it was an incredible achievement. Penicillin. Penicillin. Yes, which I'm currently on to get rid of an ear infection. <laughs> Microwave, yes. The convenience, yeah. Uh, I always love that uh, Mel Brooks and, and Carl Reiner came up, you know, with the 2,000-year-old man, and it was saran wrap. That was the greatest invention of the 20th century. Now, think about it. You know, it's pretty good. <laughs> Manufacturing process. Henry Ford, yes. Women's suffrage. Women's suffrage, 1920. So uh, electrification, so everybody getting power to their homes. Mm -hmm. Thomas Edison. Over a thousand times he failed before he finally got it right. I'd say indoor plumbing is probably on that same level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In the 20th century. yeah my, my grandparents didn't get it until like 1974, so I was, grew up having to go to their outhouse when I was at their place, which was always really interesting when you're about six years old. I'm like, I got to do what, Mom? <laughs> I got to do what? Anybody else? Just in general, um, telecommunications and... Um, interstate travel, whether you're looking at interstate systems or the airplane or just we got a lot more we got a lot more mobile and we can and a lot more connected. Definitely. Definitely made a big difference. So those are some of the things that with some of the greatest achievements of the 20th century. Now on this board there are a couple of numbers. There's five, there's 20, there's 110, and there's 182. And from the book that we're going to talk about and from the research of the two individuals that were looking at this, they decided to look at how many people died in a hundred year period in war-related deaths. So the five is for the 18th century. Five million people were killed in the 18th century for war-related deaths. The 20 stands for 20 million that took place in the 19th century. And the 110 stands for 110 million people who were killed in the 20th century. The 20th century, some that we feel like we had some of the greatest achievements, was the bloodiest 100 years in the history of the world. Now, if you factor in genocide and human-inflicted famine, that number goes up to 182 million people were killed either through war, genocide, or famine in the 20th century. So it's like, ooh, how do we deal with these kind of things? And this is where it came from. Uh, Rachel's got one of the books, I'll pull up the slide, but the book is Forgiveness and Power in an Age of Atrocity. And it's part of a class that I'm taking at Gonzaga University. So besides teaching, I myself am at Gonzaga working towards my doctorate degree. And this class talked by Dr. Shannon Furch. He did the research behind what's in this book. Uh, his specialty is forgiveness and leadership. That's what he is the professor of at Gonzaga University. Uh, he has done research in South Africa. He has done research into Europe. He's done research in the United States, particularly as a person that grew up in Montana. Uh, he has looked at some of the atrocities that have taken place with Native Americans, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, he has a master's degree in clinical psychology from Pepperdine University, 
and then he has a master, a doctorate in philosophy and psychology from the University of Alberta. So a lot of the things that we're going to be sharing is coming from these ideas that are in this book. A lot of the stories that we're going to share are stories from Dr. Furch, and then we're going to be sharing stories of our own. Because again, it's a journey. This is not a roadmap, but this is a journey. And when I mentioned this to JB, I came with Rachel, and we was talking about, it says, okay, we're going to talk about forgiveness and power. What is the scripture behind it? What is... What is the drive behind this piece that you're going to be talking about? And for me, it went back to something that I grew up with, and some of you may have too. In the 1970s, uh, there was a particular group of Brits who created a television show that wound up on most of our PBS stations. How many saw them on PBS in the 70s? Uh, there's a few of you, yes. Particularly after our parents had gone to bed because they did not particularly like it. But... As you can see with John Cleese, who's doing the Ministry of Silly Walks, and in between sketches that had absolutely nothing to do with each other, there would probably be somebody sitting at a desk in the middle of a field in Britain, and they would say, and now for something completely different. And if you look into the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, going through those chapters, Jesus told those people that day the same thing. He said, now we're going to talk about something completely different. And he had mentioned several times when you read through Matthew 5, you've heard it said long ago that you were to do this, but now I'm telling you something completely different. Let's do it this way. So for instance, in Matthew 5, and 21, 22, and 24, he starts talking about that you've heard it said that you shouldn't murder, but if you have anger against your brother, you have committed sin that's, a, that's a, to judgment. And then he goes on a little bit later and he talks about how someone who comes to make an offering to God, that if they have a grievance against their brother, they should first leave their offering and go back to their brother, reconcile, and then come back to him and give the gift to God. So now for something completely different looking at it through what Jesus was telling us in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's time again to go back into your groups and think about how do you define forgiveness. So again, you can pair up four, five, however you want to, but take a minute and think about how you want to define forgiveness. I hear great discussions going on. Nothing like to start you out with such a, a deep question right off the bat is how do you define forgiveness? Uh, but what are some of the ideas that you shared in your groups? What were some of the things that you pulled out for what makes up forgiveness? I, I, liked, uh, I liked what Jeannie said, that you, you are letting God take care of that emotional thing that happens when the wrong comes your way. And I, I like that. Yep. These weren't really part of definitions, but in the, the way that it functions, playing off of that, that forgiveness and repentance are often linked together, but they really don't have anything to do with each other. Okay. Because you can forgive without there being repentance. And you can repent of something that you have done without there being forgiveness. And it's, it's important, I think it's important to remember both of those because 
very often because we link those and because we are all because we are as Christians always seeking forgiveness, there is a tendency to expect forgiveness after an apology or uh, or repentance. And if you are the perpetrator, if you are somebody in need of forgiveness, it doesn't get to come on your timetable. Doesn't come on your time. Yeah. And and if you are forgiving, it doesn't mean that the person that you are forgiving has either apologized or changed their behavior. They are very different things. It's not transactional. Yeah. Not tra- yes, definitely not transactional. Anybody else? Those are great. Okay. So today we're going to kind of talk about and put one idea in your mind of how Jesus defined forgiveness. And again, we're going to look throughout this entire time that there are lots of different definitions that are going to pile into this. Uh, But the first one I want to look into comes from Luke 7. And it was the story where Jesus went with Simon the Pharisee and Simon had invited Jesus to his house. And when he comes into the house, all these people are there. And a woman who was a prostitute came in and broke open the alabaster box, poured the oils and the, and the expensive perfume on Jesus' feet, and then she wiped his feet with her hair and with her tears. And Simon's like, why are you letting this? You know what this person's been. Why are you letting this person come in and do this? And then... Jesus starts talking about the parable where there was a man that was in debt and he came to the master and the master was going to throw him in prison to collect the debt and he begged for forgiveness and the master forgave him of an enormous debt. And then he went out and there was somebody who owed him just a penance of money that couldn't pay and he didn't show any mercy. He had him thrown into prison until he collected it. And then the other servants of the master went and told him what had happened and he brought him back in and he's like I gave you forgave you an enormous amount and you could forgive this person for a little bit and he threw him into prison until he could collect the debt and when Jesus talked about that he came back and he asked him you know who would need the forgiveness more and he said the person that had more that needed to be forgiven and he talked about that she was a person that was forgiven of many sins, but she also loved much. So she was forgiven much. And a person that can forgive little, loves little. So when we keep looking through the things that we're gonna talk about today, in particular we're gonna talk about some really some atrocity, I promise it won't be this bad all the way. We're, we're kind of laying the groundwork today and we're gonna move forward. But that forgiveness, and love is an action, not a feeling. It is an action. And I believe that's what Jesus is saying in this scripture, that if you love much, you'll be forgiven much. If you love little, you'll be forgiven little. So when we look at these things, how do we live with atrocity? We talked about that in the 20th century, 182 million people were killed in either wars, genocide, or human-enforced famine. I'll share one from here in the United States, and then Rachel's got several to share with you that were in the book from South Africa. But here in the U.S., 
in the summer of 1877, for 126 days, uh, the Naz Pierce, who had refused to sign a new treaty that had taken their land to one-tenth the size of what it was before, were being chased by the United States Army across a lot of the Pacific Northwest. They went through about five states, mostly uh, from Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and into Montana, trying to reach Canada. And so during that 126 days, they're being chased by the U.S. Army. On August the 9th in 1877, they had encamped in an area called Big Hole Valley, which is in Montana. And of course, they're going with both their families, their children, the warriors, all of them together while they're being pursued by the U.S. Army, and particularly Colonel John Gibbons. They stop there, and within the valley, there is a beautiful blue flower called the blue camas, C-A-M-A-S, and the the bulb of it is like a root, like a potato, and so for them, it was one of their food supplies, and they could stop and take those and dig them up. They would roast them, bake them, then they could have them dried, they could mix them with fruit and make a cake, or they could even ground them up as a powder and they'd be able to sprinkle it over other food. And it was part of their food supply throughout the winter was these blue camas. So they're doing this, they're gathering, they think they're far ahead, that the army is way behind and they have these days to be able to do it. So they set up their teepees, they've set up camp. But on the morning of August the 7th, Colonel Gibbons and his troops had been there for a day or so. They had a howitzer that they could use to bomb into the, into the encampment. And they weren't quite ready to make their attack yet, but unfortunately for them, but unfortunately for the Nas Pierce, one of their scouts was out. He surprised the army. The alert went up. A lot of the warriors were able to get out of the encampment. But Colonel Gibbons ordered his soldiers to fire three volleys low into the teepees, knowing that in the teepees would be women and children. One of, on the site about the big hole uh, national battlefield on the, on the National Park side, it talks about one of the corporals said that he ordered us to fire the volleys in low, but what happened in the camp was not orders and it was brutal. That day, 90 Nas Pierce, or what they call themselves, the Nimipu, 90 died. 60 were women and children. 30 warriors were killed. Because the warriors were able to get out of the camp, they were able to get back and do a counterattack. And that day, John Gibbons and his troops lost 30 soldiers. And they were able to take out the howitzer before it could do any more damage. And for a couple more weeks, a couple more days, they chased them up through. And eventually, Chief Joseph, who was one of the five non-treaty tribes surrendered. Many of you may have heard that name of Chief Joseph from the South in the Northwest. And their people surrendered. Last year, the Nas Pierce, the Nimipu, were able to purchase 148 acres in the Big Hole Valley. They bought it from a private owner. Most of the Big Hole uh, Valley, Valley was privately owned, except for the little portion of the battlefield, but they were able to buy it back. And for the last couple of years, they have been hosting a reconciliation ceremony. And on this day, uh, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Richard Childers and then you see Shannon Wheeler, who is the vice chairman of the Nimipu Tribal Council, had a reconciliation ceremony. Members of the tribe 
who were descendants of the people that were killed on August the 9th in 1877 were there, and descendants of the soldiers from 1877 were there. And every year they hold a reconciliation ceremony so that they can move forward in what they're doing. One of the, I guess, most impactful stories in this book um, relates to South Africa and the work that occurred there post-apartheid. So I didn't really know that much about it, but y'all may know more about it. But, you know, this is sort of some, I think something from our, I don't know, kind of modern times, from our recent history. Um, so as the country of South Africa was coming out of, you know, 40 plus years of apartheid, there was something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was founded. And the purpose of this commission was to provide reconciliation and forgiveness for the perpetrators and victims of apartheid. So as I read a little bit more about this, and it was just kind of amazing to think about this. Um, so it was founded by leaders that we've all heard of, obviously Nelson Mandela, Desmond Tutu, um, and others, and they, it was based on their thought that retribution, whether it was, um, you know, putting people in prison, any kind of punishment, um, they felt like that was only going to lead to more widespread violence in South Africa, and they had come out of this period of so much violence. And so they had a different vision, and their vision was for restorative justice. So they established this commission in 1996, and Basically, rather than like seeking out, hunting down, arresting, punishing perpetrators of all these horrible human rights violations, their idea was to bring everyone together, perpetrators, victims, into this commission and allow people to tell their stories. It was, they had practical reasons they wanted to do this. One was they wanted to have a true um, kind of list of what had happened to people they wanted, they were, they were asking basically perpetrators to come in and be honest, honest about what had happened, and in exchange for that, they'd have the opportunity to receive amnesty. And they wanted victims of human rights atrocities to be able to come in and tell their story and be heard and allow the country to grieve. So um, they wanted to have a true record of everything that had happened because so much of this was just you know, never going to come out otherwise. Um, people wanted to know what had happened to their loved ones and friends. Um, they wanted to be able to determine what organizations, what people, what groups had contributed to all these human rights atrocities, and they wanted to make sure that they knew how to make sure this didn't happen again. So they promised, um, but basically by giving everybody an opportunity to either air their grievances or tell the truth, they thought they could move forward. The next key piece that they asked of all of the South African people was forgiveness. So they asked folks, you know, we're going to bring everyone together, really find out what happened, allow people to ask for amnesty, but we want the people of South Africa to approach all of this with forgiveness. And I don't know about you, but especially thinking about the craziness that we've had the past few years, most people's natural tendency is just to want to hold that grudge and, you know, be angry and bitter and, you know, talk about you did wrong or you did wrong. And they were able, the respect that the people of South Africa had for Mandela and Tutu and others, 
enabled them to ask the people to really consider forgiveness. And so, you know, it, it was a success. It wasn't perfect. Um, but South Africa has been, you know, more or less free of the horrible violence that they experienced coming out of um, apartheid and has really given us a modern example of what healing and true reconciliation looks like um, and how that can result from forgiveness. So I'm going to give you all just three stories that are highlighted in the book that come out of this period in South Africa. Um, the first one is about a, an American student named Amy Beale. And she was um, a Fulbright Scholar in South Africa. She graduated from Stanford with honors, had gone to South Africa to work. As they were nearing their very first democratic election, she was helping to create a process for um, registering black South Africans to vote. So she was working day in and day out, and it was about a week before she was scheduled to come back to the United States. So it was in April of 1993. And she was driving three of her black coworkers home, to a township um, outside of Cape Town, and they encountered a militant black mob. Of course, this mob had no idea who she was, that she was really working, you know, kind of on their side to end apartheid, but they just saw her as a white settler, is kind of what they termed her. They pulled her from the car, stoned her, and stabbed her to death. Her Killers were convicted in 1994 and sentenced to 18 years in prison. Uh, so they were serving their prison time when the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission was established a couple of years later. Um, initially, the four uh, perpetrators were not, they didn't believe in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They thought they wouldn't really get a fair hearing. They thought, you know, they were just going to be, um, exploited again. They just, they were very hesitant to even approach it. They were obstinate and they you know, felt like they really hadn't done anything that wrong and, um, you know, weren't even going to partake in the process. Eventually they were convinced to consider coming before the commission and they did. Um, they applied for amnesty in 1997 and at the hearings, the men were able to tell their stories, and you, it's really interesting reading in the book and hearing it from their point of view, and so you're hearing the backstory of what they had been through and what they were thinking on the day of this murder, um, but they, the most telling thing for them at the hearing was hearing about Amy from her parents, seeing her parents, and seeing uh, her parents' um, belief in, kind of on behalf of their daughter, but belief in that truth and reconciliation process. So, you know, they were expecting her parents to be there, and I mean, if my daughter had been brutally killed, I would, well, who knows what any of us would do, but these parents had decided to honor their daughter's um, belief in the system, and they came and not only did not oppose amnesty for these men, they supported it um, and offered complete forgiveness. So they did receive amnesty and were released from jail a year later. Um, and then a few years after that, the men reached out to Amy's parents through the foundation they had established in South Africa in their daughter's name. And um, the parents helped them with job training, helped to kind of give purpose to their lives. And now they are so close that they, Amy's parents, refer to these men as their sons. Um, and it just was astounding to me because, yeah, I mean, 
how would you feel if your child had been just brutally murdered? And how would you really be able to face them and embrace them? Um, and I guess what stood out to me with this story was it's very extreme and it's amazing, um, but you see the impact of forgiveness on both sides. And so not only, like you said, kind of the forgiveness and repentance, they're both separate, but you see the impact of it to the parents and all the good they're able to do after they forgive, and then you see the positive impact on their own lives. Um, and there was a researcher that had been doing a lot of work in South Africa and studying the outcome of the Truth Reconciliation Commission, and she had an interesting uh, kind of conclusion. She said, and this kind of goes to what you were saying, it's not the repentance of the perpetrator that built the necessary bridge to reconciliation. Instead, it was the unconditional forgiveness given by those who were harmed. That was what brought true healing and reconciliation. Um, so as you read this, and it's amazing, inspiring, and you think, oh, that's unbelievable. And then you kind of translate it to your own life, like, surely I can forgive the person that really hurts you know, these people can forgive the people that put the but we'll get into all that. Um, but another um, story out of this, which was also fascinating, was of Brian Mitchell. So he was a police um, commander in this little town called Trespe, South Africa, about about 7,000 um, people, a black community. And his job as violence was kind of increasing. This was in 1988. His job was to try to thwart the work of the um, uh, African National Congress and the United Democratic Front Forces. So these folks that were trying to fight against the apartheid government. So in December of 1988, he ordered an attack on a terrorist cell in this house. They bought ammunition to be manufactured and stored in this house. So he dropped off these four policemen at the house. Policemen went in. Um, you know, raided it, and when Brian Mitchell walked in the house, he realized the wrong house had been targeted, and there were 11 women and children that had been murdered. Um, so, of course, what did he do? He and his superiors engaged in this massive cover-up, and they decided to blame it on the um, United Defense Front Forces. So this went on for a couple years, and. I think about three or four years later, an investigation was reopened into this massacre, and he was convicted. He was given 11 death sentences for his role in commanding this attack. Um, eventually, his death sentence was commuted to 30 years in prison, which actually made him eligible for requesting amnesty through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. You couldn't request amnesty if you had a, um, a sentence of death or I think more like to prison, but he um, requested amnesty, came before them, told the whole story, a lot of which had never, truth of which had never come out. Um, he was eventually released from prison. He went back to the community of trustee, made a public apology, and asked for their forgiveness. And they didn't get it. They were angry, and they were bitter, and they said, no, we are not forgiving you. Um, Mitchell says that after that, he was just, he was out of jail, but he was depressed, he was haunted by the massacre and his role in it. Um, you know, he had asked for forgiveness and hadn't been given. And about a year later, the 
son of one of the women that had been murdered called him and asked if he would come back to Tuskegee and participate in this ceremony of reconciliation. So he did, and um, they had this ritual um, ceremony, and the people forgave him, and they even invited him to come back and live in their community. So he did. He moved back um, and ended up spending years raising money, building a community center there, and he had one of the quotes from him that I thought was so interesting was, said that the day that he was forgiven by the community um, was the day that his life really began again. He said, I was dead until that day, and after that day I lived. So sometimes we would think, oh, he got him to see out of jail, he can move on with his life, but he was still living in such turmoil and pain from his um, past actions that he said, he was like, I asked for God, God for forgiveness, but it wasn't until the people of trust me really forgave me that you can start living again. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, you just think about the, the strength of those people as people are asking back, and not just forgive them, but have them live in their community with them. Um, and then one last little example, there was another, a white woman whose daughter was also killed in a black militant um, action, and she offered forgiveness and reconciliation to the man who had commanded her daughters murder and at a ceremony in the man's hometown they did a reconciliation and healing ceremony and they gave them new names and so the new names were symbolized a unique greeting so each time the man who commanded the murder and the mother would meet um, they would say where are you I am with you get a response and uh, so I just and now they go around and speak internationally about forgiveness and healing. Like it's just it's amazing. So when you when you read about these modern day incredible stories of horrible atrocity, but also incredible forgiveness and healing and the reconciliation that can come from that on the other end of it, it's um, it's very inspiring. And this kind of echoes something that Joel had said. Um, I love this. This was a quote from Martin Luther King. Um, Kind of talking about where a love is not an emotion, you know, it's something that we're commanded to do. So he says, Martin Luther King says, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. The one who is devoid of the power to forgive is devoid of the power to love. So we're, we must develop and maintain the capacity to forgive. So it's not, it's not based on our emotions, it's not something that is going to be easy to do, but it's something that we have to work on and work towards, and that's a continual process. But it's linked directly with how um, how we love, how we're able to love. These are some of the things that we're going to be covering over the next couple of weeks, and I know some people may have to leave in just a minute, but I'd ask uh, some of you can to stay on a little bit longer. These are some of the different topics that we'll cover next week because this is being looked at through the lens of servant leadership. Next week I'm going to kind of introduce servant leadership to you and a lot of the concepts that were put forward by Robert Greenleaf back in the 1970s. And then we're going to talk about forgiveness of self, forgiveness of family, forgiveness of the church, the forgiveness of the community. But one of the components, as we said, this has been a journey. And one of the components has been mindfulness. 
does anybody in here journal? All right, we got some people that journal. Uh, Tracy, you want to get some of those mm -hmm. up here? So for those that don't have your own journal, uh, Tracy's going to hand out some of these. And you're going to have some homework. And this week, this is your homework. I attend Gonzaga University, which is a Jesuit university in Spokane, Washington. And the Jesuit philosophy comes from St. Ignatius, and St. Ignatius lived in the 1400s. And yes, if you have your phone out, please take a picture of this for you to use this week. And one of the things that he came up with was different spiritual practices, and this one is called the prayer of the examine. And usually you would do it at the end of the day, and you would want to reflect back on what happened that day. Now, I know currently we're kind of in coming up here to lunchtime, but we're going to stop for just a second, and we're going to go through this practice briefly to kind of get an idea. And this week, go through this and journal your experience with doing the prayer of the examine this week. It doesn't matter if you do it in the morning. It doesn't matter if you do it at lunchtime or you do it in the evening. Just reflect back on the last 24 hours, and we're going to look for these things. So for right now, let's go through the practice. So get yourself into a position that you're comfortable, that you can get in contact, and right now, let's place ourselves in God's presence and give thanks for the love that God has given us. Pray for grace to understand how God is acting in your life. Review the last 24 hours. Recall specific moments in your day and your feelings at that time. Reflect on what you did, said, or thought in those instances. Were you drawing closer to God or further away?
And then lastly, look forward to tomorrow. Ask where you need God in the day to come. Thank you. Try that practice this week. I'll leave this up here so that you, if you have your phone, you can take a snapshot of it. But journal your, your days. Go through this journey and think about these and use this prayer of the examine this week. Next week, we're going to look into servant leadership and move a little bit forward in where we're going with this. Thank you so much.